Let us hear God's word, turning to the letter of James. We've been studying James uh, recently, working our way gradually through the letter. We begin our reading today in James chapter 4 and verse 11, and then we carry on into chapter 5. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. In your Bible reading, I wonder, do you read much of the Old Testament prophets? The popular view of the Old Testament prophets was that they foretold the future, that with God's help they looked into the future and they talked about events that hadn't yet happened. And of course they did. They certainly did speak of the future. But actually much of the message of the Old Testament prophets had to do first of all with their own day, with their first hearers and their first readers. They were those who brought God's word to those around them, and yes, certainly to future generations like us. And as you read the Old Testament prophets, it's interesting how often they addressed issues of injustice that were evident in society around them. They saw much that was wrong with society, and in God's name and with God's authority, they denounced it. So much of the message of the Old Testament prophets indeed was forth-telling God's word more than perhaps foretelling future events. People of God were to learn from the warnings that the prophets gave. They were to take to heart God's word to them and were to seek uh, to live godly lives in society. In many ways, James sounds quite like an Old Testament prophet and much of what he wrote in his letter. In a sense, James 
seems to fulfill that kind of role in the New Testament, exposing uh, the sins of society, warning the church to be on guard against allowing the thinking of the world to filter into the church and into the minds of Christians. And we see that in the portion uh, we'll be looking at today. So now we're turning to the opening verses uh, of James chapter 5. And here we are thinking about the dangers of wealth. The dangers of wealth. Now your first response to hearing that might well be to say, well, at least this week it doesn't apply to me because I am not wealthy. And then tune out and go somewhere else in your head for the rest of the sermon. And don't suppose you do that any other week. But when we're talking about wealth, you might think, none to do with me, I'm not wealthy. And so I've got half an hour uh, to think of whether I left the dinner on at home or what I'm going to do tomorrow or something else. Well, I trust by the time uh, we've worked through these verses, we'll see that actually James has a word for all of us. Whatever size our bank account may be, whatever investments, if any, we might have. Because this is God's word to all of God's people. And there is a word for all of us, no matter what our financial or economic circumstances may be. So let's look at what James has to say to us. And we see, first of all, the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Now, listen, you rich people, he begins. And generally, it's recognized by commentators and scholars that James probably isn't, first of all, addressing the church, the Christian community, when he refers to you rich people. Now, why is that? It's because generally, Christians, certainly in the early church, were not wealthy people. There were not uh, many wealthy in the church. Many of them were slaves. Many of them were at the bottom of the scale, socially and economically. There were no doubt exceptions. There were believers who were wealthy, but they were exceptions, and most of them were not. Indeed, society tended to look down in the Christian church for that very reason. It was the poor and those who weren't well off who went to church Wealthy people didn't do that. So when James addresses you rich people, probably not, first of all, the, the Christians that he is rebuking. You think back to chapter 2 and verse 6, uh, he says, it's not, uh, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? In fact, the Christians were, were more likely uh, to be suffering at the hands of the wealthy and the influential and the powerful. We might say, well, did rich unbelievers read James? Did they ever hear what James was saying? Did they hear his rebukes? And the answer is probably not. So why are they here? What's the point of addressing people who weren't there? Like a preacher preaching to people who aren't in front of him, who are somewhere else. What, what is James doing? 
Well, in rebuking the wealthy, surely James is issuing a warning to God's people not to fall into the attitudes and the conduct of those who are being rebuked. Wealthy, influential, with no thought for others. As Christians listen to this, they're to take warning and avoid the dangers, avoid the sins that James is highlighting. You see, the Old Testament prophets did that as well. Think of the passages in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, for example, addressed to the nations around Israel. Are we really to think that somebody took a copy of Jeremiah and went down to Babylon, for example, and gave it to the king to read? More than likely, that never happened. It's not that the nations read the prophets, but God's people were to listen and learn, learn for themselves. And that's what's happening here in James 5. As James rebukes the rich, the kind of people who give Christians a tough time, Christians are to listen and be on their guard against the the attitudes and the actions that are being described. And if that was true for the early church, where most Christians were not well off, and a good many of them actually were poor, Surely these are warnings uh, that we need to hear even more today because in the world's terms, actually all of us are wealthy. We might not be wealthy by the standards of this society, but if we measure ourselves against other parts of the world, against how other Christians are living, we are actually all wealthy. One of the things, if you travel to other parts of the world, not simply as a tourist where you're maybe in a little bubble with people like yourself, but if you're in another part of the world, maybe by yourself, and you see how people are living, you begin to realize actually that all of us are wealthy in our society. And so there is a lesson that we need to listen to and take to heart. We may not have a big bank balance, and yet God has given us possessions. He's given us a certain amount materially. And James's rebukes to the wealthy, like everything he says, are very direct and very powerful. The seriousness of the issues is clear. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you, he says to them. That is coming upon you. Present tense, is coming. What's he saying? He's saying, look, God's judgment is not far away. You've got to take that into account. You've got to reckon with that. There's a real urgency in his warnings. A reminder, indeed, that our use of our possessions is of concern to the Lord. You know, there are some Christians who seem to think that God's only interested in the soul, in the spiritual part of you, and that how we use our money, what our lifestyle is, and so forth, isn't really of interest to God and doesn't matter. But the Bible won't let us think that. 
God's the God who made body as well as soul. God is the God who in Christ saves the body as well as the soul. And so these things, these material things, are of concern to the Lord. Because, of course, our use of material things is often an indicator of what's in our hearts. It's like a thermometer. tells you your spiritual temperature. Luke 6, 24, the Lord Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. You've got all you're going to get, the Lord was saying. So here's an area of life where as Christians we need to pay attention. We're not to fail in the area of the material and what God commits to us and how we use it. We may not be wealthy as Our society measures it, but God has given us much, and in the world's terms, we're wealthy. So there's the seriousness of sin. In particular, and secondly, we see the deceptiveness of wealth, the deceptiveness of wealth. Now, we need to be clear, uh, Scripture does not condemn wealth in and of itself. The Bible doesn't say, if you have money, if you have possessions, if you own a house, you must be ungodly, and you must have got it in some sinful way. It doesn't say that. There are those in Scripture who were wealthy. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Job, before and after his time of trial, was a very wealthy man, and there are others in Scripture. So possessions and wealth of themselves are not condemned in the Bible, assuming, of course, they were obtained in lawful ways. But what is vital is our attitude to our possessions. The Lord Jesus takes us right to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? Matthew 6, verse 21 in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. And that's the principle that that undergirds everything really as far as Christians' attitude to and use of possessions is concerned. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And obviously if our treasure is material, if it's the things of this world, then our hearts will be in the things of this world. And the Lord warns us, and James is warning us, we mustn't build our lives on earthly wealth, on possessions, on material things. Of course, to many people, material possessions seem so permanent and so reassuring that the more they have, The more secure they are, the the more secure their future is. There are the offers, of course, uh, of investments to give an amazing rate of return. The principle, even on a worldly level, is if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And yet you see how people fall for it. They fall for the internet scams. And we might stand back and think, they're idiots. Why do they do that? 
But it's that urge and desire to have, to offer security now and maybe even more so in the future, to store up and to be secure. And James shows us how foolish it is to regard material things as permanent and to take reassurance from them. Material wealth is temporal. It's temporary. It'll pass away sometimes sooner than expected. There can be a financial crash. There can be a sudden crisis that you never anticipated and all the resources you thought you had may disappear in a moment and to have built on that and to have trusted in that is so foolish a very vivid prophetic picture James gives us your wealth has rotted moths have eaten your clothes why does he mention clothes well because in the ancient world especially, uh, clothes, splendid clothes, were a form of wealth. And if you had splendid clothes, they were very valuable. And so, just like money in the bank, splendid clothing was a form of wealth. And James is saying the, the wealth will rot, the moths will get at the clothing. Your silver and gold are corroded. Well, not literally. Silver can tarnish, but gold, of course, part of its value is it doesn't. Uh, But it's a metaphor, it's a picture. Uh, Even the most apparently permanent things, even gold, will pass away. Echoes of Jesus, surely, isn't James's mind uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19, we're not to be laying up treasure where moth and rust destroy I'm sure that was in James's mind as he wrote. Possessions can't give you meaning in life. They can't give you security. They may promise it, but they don't deliver. The, the, the unused piles of, of money and splendid clothing, James says, will testify against you. There'll be evidence to show how materialistic you were, how concerned you were with the things of this world. And they'll just increase your condemnation. You see, the great danger is that materialism warps our perspective. And we think we're seeing clearly, but we're not. We're not seeing clearly at all. James says, verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Hoarding in the last days. James is saying how utterly foolish. You don't understand, he says, the significance of living in the last days. Remember, according to the New Testament, the last days began with Jesus' first coming. They'll carry on till his return. We are in the last days. And to fail to realize that and to understand the world is heading towards an end and towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and to live as if life will go on the same forever and there'll be no account given of how you used 
your resources and your possessions, to live like that is the height of folly. It's to be like the rich fool of Jesus' parable in Luke 12. To be storing up, to think you have plenty for many days. And the plenty can vanish and the many days can vanish just like that. To have built your life on those things that cannot last. And to fail to realize you'll be giving account to God for how you've used what he's committed to you is utter folly. That's to live as if you controlled the future. The theme we looked at at the end of chapter 4 last time. And to be living for possessions and for material things and for accumulating and getting more in order to be safe and secure is so futile. Storing up in the last days. Do we realize that we are living in the last days? The next great event will be the return of Christ. Whenever it comes, that's the next big thing in the history of the world. Are you living in the light of that? That he will come back again one day with absolute certainty. The deceptiveness of wealth. To be living for things that will pass away. How foolish. James then focuses on exactly what is wrong in this mindset that he's exposing. He looks thirdly at the sins of the wealthy. Okay, so materialism is a foolish way to live. What exactly are the sins of those who live like this? Perhaps the most misquoted verse in the Bible is 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. What it should be is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, how often have you heard it quoted? I trust you haven't quoted it as money's the root of all evil. It's not what it says. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And James, as he looks with a clear eye at the lifestyle of these people, these uh, wealthy people, spells out exactly how that attitude may show itself. If you are living for material things, if that is the focus, what will that look like? What sort of attitudes will we see? What do we need to be on our guard against ourselves? If we spot these sins, we need to hear the alarm bells. What are the sins of the wealthy? Well, maybe first and foremost, James exposes greed. Greed, plain and simple. They've hoarded wealth, verse 3. They're not satisfied with what they've got. Indeed, those he has in view particularly aren't satisfied with what they can get legitimately. Sharp practice, robbing workers, the wages you failed to pay, Here are employers you wouldn't want to be working for. Uh, The word of God makes it clear that workers' wages should be paid at the end of the working day. That was the law. But here are employers who 
are withholding wages, contrary to what Scripture would require. Of course, how much worse if these should happen to be Christian employers. And you know, of course, how the world looks at Christian employers and weighs up what they say and what they do and sees do they match. We've seen that in recent days. And the gospel can be done tremendous damage when professing Christians behave in these kinds of ways. Sharp practice, dubious things that happen and the world says, aha, Christians, yeah. We always knew they were hypocrites. Whoever loves money, Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, never has money enough. That's the danger. We get a little greedy, but it grows. The infection grows a little bit more greedy, a little bit more. Just don't have quite enough of it. A little bit more would be satisfied. And then you have it and maybe I'm just not satisfied. Maybe a wee bit more, that would be good. Whoever loves money never has money enough. And you'll never be satisfied if you're living a life that revolves around what you possess what you can earn, and what you can store away, and what you can invest. If that is the beginning and end of your life, you will never be satisfied. Greed's the first sin. Second sin, he highlights, is indifference. Indifference to the hardships of others. Not caring about others. As long as I'm all right and I'm secure, well, it's a pity of others, but if they'd work a bit harder or they'd even get a job, they'd be all right and I don't have to worry about them. You see that in the world, but it can filter into the thinking of Christians as well. Uh, here, of course, in James's context, it was often the rich who were causing hardship for others, causing hardship for Christians. But they're not moved by the plight of the poor. They're indifferent. They're becoming hardened to the needs of others. And even if they're not directly involved in causing the poor to suffer, they harden their hearts. And the danger can be we harden our hearts against those in need. Now, the Bible is full of injunctions, of clear commands to show concern for the poor. There's much of that in the prophets. Sometimes evangelicals don't seem to see it in their Bibles, but it's there. Concern for those in need. Now we know, of course, there are those who end up in need because of their foolishness or their unwillingness to work. We have experience in our own uh, setting of those uh, who'd be happy for a handout, but if you suggest they look for work, would laugh in your face. Uh, they've done it. But the danger is then we become cynical about everybody and we become hard. I think nobody's really in need and there's nothing we need do about it. And yet the Bible shows that concern for those in need is a mark of a believer. We have it earlier in James in chapter 2 uh, verse 15. And we have it in many parts of Scripture, Old and New Testaments. And the fact that some poverty is the result 
of a foolish, a sinful lifestyle is not an excuse to escape our duty to others who are in need, who can be helped, and as the Bible tells us, especially those in the household of faith. So sins of the, of the rich, there's greed, indifference to the needs of others that could, should be helped. And the third sin is self-centeredness. And often it comes back in the end to that, doesn't it? Self-centeredness. Uh, it's out of self-centeredness that the other sins really flow. You've lived on earth, James says, uh, uh, in luxury and self-indulgence, Self-indulgence, that's crucial, isn't it? Me. And we live in a me generation, in a culture that's all about me. Self-indulgence. Self-centeredness. Concern only for our own comfort. But you don't have to be very wealthy to live like that. You see, the poor actually can be as materialistic as the rich. Because they can be building on things and thinking things are the measure of what life is about. And it's really just another way of putting self at the center of life. And we need to be on our guard against that. Because that's the the root of sin, isn't it? Putting self at the center. That's what happened in Eden. Adam and Eve put self at the center. And so here's the warning, putting self at the center. I am my own God. We need to be on our guard. And it's a sin that can easily grow You've condemned and murdered innocent men, James says. I mean, that pulls us up short. What do they mean? Are these murderers he's addressing? Probably not literally murder. They haven't taken away the life of an individual, but there are other ways of destroying people. Perhaps judicial murder. These are the wealthy, the powerful, those who are in control of the administration of justice, they're in a position to oppress and get away with it, using their influence to their own advantage, murdering in that sense. I think that's what James has in mind. And that's what much of the world is like around us, isn't it? That's how it functions. What a tremendous opportunity for Christians and in business, Christian employers to show a godly outlook to material things, to people. To show something of Christ, because how all of us conduct our working life, if we're still in work, is a witness, the testimony to others. And how we view our possessions speaks volumes to those who know us and who interact with us. And they hear our attitudes, and they ought to be very different from what they can hear in the rest of the world. As Christians, we need to be on our guard against greed and indifference and self-centeredness. We may not be wealthy people, 
as those around us think of wealth. But the sins can be our sins if we are not on our guard with the Spirit's help. Serious issues. And James, just finally, has a word to say about the judgment of God, to pull all of these big issues together. The judgment of God. The rich are reminded of a principle we have, for example, in Galatians 6, 7. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A reminder that judgment is to be faced. We are accountable for how we use our possessions, how we use whatever God has given us, as we're accountable for our talents and our abilities and our opportunities. There is a judgment. You've got to reckon with that as you live your life. And when there's no human help for those who are being oppressed, the Lord takes note. The Lord will judge. Their cries, James says, have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. God's listening. And God's watching. They have reached. It's a perfect tense James uses. They have reached and they stay there and they're taken account of by God. And in his time, he will call each one to account. It's a serious matter. He will do perfect justice. James has the judgment in view. The piles of unused resources that will testify against you. Evidence that you lived your life for this world, for things, for things that will pass away. You think of the rich man in Luke 16, Jesus' parable, ignoring Lazarus. It doesn't say that the rich man went out and kicked Lazarus or did him any direct damage. But he ignored him and didn't do anything for him. James talks about the day of slaughter. That's powerful language, isn't it? Strong language James is using. They'll eat your flesh like fire. We mustn't minimize the sins of materialism and living for this life and this world. Lord Jesus Christ will come as judge. All will give account to him. And among the things for which we're accountable will be our use of possessions, of wealth, of resources. Have they been used in God-honoring, God-glorifying ways? Or have they been used for self? Have they been used for our own enjoyment while the needs of others have been ignored? We need to be sure that we're trusting in Christ and not in anything in this world. Not in possessions, not in wealth, not in anything in this world. We're trusting in the Christ who is returning at the last day and to whom we will give account of how we've used what God has given us. God's not only interested in our souls, but in our bodies. With our bodies we show What's in our souls? How we live? Do we live for this world? Do we live for what passes away? Or are we living for Christ and for his glory and for his kingdom?